Welcome everybody to Contrarian Daily. My name is Jake Julius and today I am operating purely solo because my good friend Chris has left me uh, left me hanging tonight. So shame on you, Chris. No, he's a bit busy. But uh, big day in the world today, guys. So it's a good day to be going solo. We've got uh, Joe Biden's State of the Union address, which happened today. So for those of you who don't know, the State of the Union address is something that happens uh, every time a new president is elected after a year or so. Donald Trump did a few of them himself. And basically, it's where they are meant to address the state of the nation. So today, that was Joe, Joe Biden's first one in 14 months. And it was an interesting one, to say the least. Uh, first of all, I want to say, in terms of brain farts, he wasn't as bad as he has been previously. I mean, I don't know what, maybe they had him on a few little supplements, but who knows? He was actually pretty switched on. There were a few brain farts, but he wasn't that bad. But I mean, you might ask, is that the standard you want to hold the president to? But unfortunately, this is what has become of the United States president. And the fact that he only had a few brain farts here and there during the address today was actually quite an achievement. So I want to first of all say it's probably the best I've seen Joe Biden speak in terms of yeah, in terms of uh, the amount of errors that he made or lack thereof. So there was a lot said. There was a lot of words said today in Joe Biden's State of the Union address. First of all, I'm torn about his his initial opening in terms of his rhetoric about Russia and Ukraine because it was very inflammatory. And, you know, as the president of the United States, you obviously need to be going out there and you need to be saying, oh, you know, we're going to, put all these sanctions on Russia and we're going to show them who's boss and what have you. But at the same time, I think that we have to think of this situation as avoiding war at all costs because we're not playing around here and we're not, we're not trying to play political strongman games when it comes to nuclear war. We're not, I know Michael Knowles this week said that this is the first time in our lifetimes that two civilized nations have been at war. Now that's a bit harsh because I think that Libya maybe was perhaps civilized before the United States got involved. Uh, but this is certainly the first time in our lifetimes, besides of course, if you're alive during the Cold War, which I wasn't before the end of the Soviet Union. Uh, but this is the first time that we've seen big superpowers of the world uh, potentially engaging in war with each other. And it's the first time we've seen uh, a country in Europe or countries in Europe really go to war in our lifetime. So this is a big deal. And I think that the foremost objective here has to be avoiding war at all costs. We're not playing games here. Russia and the United States are responsible for 90% of the world's nuclear weapons, 90% collectively. Now we think that, you know, there are nuclear weapons in North Korea and the rocket man, as Trump calls him, is always, you know, practicing on nuclear weapons. But now we're talking about countries that genuinely have the ability to flatten the world. So that should be the first one. So this is why I was slightly torn today about Biden's rhetoric towards Putin and towards Russia, because whilst I think that having a strong message towards Russia in terms of the fact that we're going to sanction you at all, sanction you is, is important. At the same time, I do think that there should be a level of diplomacy. But has that ship already sailed, you might ask? Maybe it has. We saw during Trump's presidency that there was most definitely a level of respect there between Trump and Putin. And I think that Trump, for whatever reason, we don't know the ins and outs, we don't know the nooks and crannies of it, but Trump was a deterrent for Putin. He was a deterrent in the sense that Putin was, for some reason, not wanting to go to war against a Donald Trump's America. 
This can't be said, the same cannot be said about Obama because during Obama's time in 2014 was when, uh, was when Putin took Crimea. So he was willing to engage with Ukraine at that time and to risk the force of NATO. But now, down the road, he didn't mess with Trump. You saw Trump when they, when they met each other, Trump did the old handshake that Trump loved to do where he pulls them in. So I don't know, maybe it was the handshake. It could have been a number of things. But this is all speculation. The timing of it could be something that is just a coincidence, but I highly doubt it because it's very important to know that one of the first things that Joe Biden did when he got into office was he cancelled the, the Keystone Pipeline, which was causing uh, America to be energy independent. So the Keystone Pipeline was going to be called, was going to be supplying America with up to eight hundred thirty thousand barrels of oil or, or gas every single day. And then the very next thing that Joe Biden did was then he went and he approved the Nord Stream Pipeline, which is basically the one of the biggest uh, deals that Russia could have asked for. And now Russia is an energy superpower of the world. They supply America with six hundred barrels a day whereas the keystone pipeline could have been supplying 830,000 barrels a day and the only reason that joe biden did that was to virtue signal that he wasn't creating cheap oil on and you know uh, dredging the earth for oil so it was it was a really 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 bad move plus 10,000 jobs were lost in the middle of a pandemic so that was a terrible move by joe biden and now we're seeing it that People are putting sanctions on uh, on Russia, but you, the USA hasn't yet put a sanction on Russian energy. So that is where you want to target. If you want to target the, Russia's economy, you want to put sanctions on their energy. And we've seen Germany start to do this now. We know that Germany are one of the countries that are the greenest in the world in terms of their progressive attitude towards energy. But now they're investing more in natural resources and they're going to be taking a step back from their relationship with Russia, whereby they get 50% of their gas and oil from Russia. So another interesting thing about Germany as well, guys, is that they've also committed 2% of their military budget uh, moving forward, the 2% of their budget, sorry, to military moving forward. And now for anybody who knows your 20th century history, you'll know that Germany uh, still has a lot of regret hangover from what happened. Let's just say that. We all know what happened in Germany during the 20th century. Now, since then, you've got Angela Merkel, who's let in over a million refugees during that crisis, uh, which is one of the biggest disasters to happen in, in, in the history of the EU, in my opinion. Uh, and we've got them now trying to be at the forefront world leaders in terms of renewable energy, and, you know, look, that's fine. But now when the barbarians are at the gate, Germany have all of a sudden decided to turn around and say, okay, cool, we're going to invest in natural, re our own resources again. And we're going to stop taking it off Russia as much. And we're going to arm ourselves. Now, if you guys think about it, countries should be arming themselves and countries should be able to defend themselves. However, what would you prefer? And I ask you this. So just think about it yourself. Would you prefer America to be the police of the world? And would you prefer America to be the ones who are sorting out all of the geopolitical, major geopolitical issues in the world? Or would you prefer all different countries to be armed and ready for war at all times? What would you prefer? I know what I'd prefer. And I think that I would prefer America to be 
the, the, the police of the world, basically. And I know that's a controversial statement because America have done some terrible things. And you look at the Iraq war, you look at the Libya war, you look at the war in Yemen that's being perpetrated by the Saudis, but being funded or backed by the, the United States. You know, you, can, you could say that the rise of ISIS directly linked to the funding of the United States. So the United States have by no means been perfect on the world stage. But do we want that or do we want people constantly fighting? So think about it like this. This is the way I like to think about it. The United States is the teacher. The rest of the world are the students, okay? When the teacher leaves the class, what are the students going to do? Probably start fighting each other. So now we're seeing Germany wanting to arm themselves. We're seeing, you know, other Nordic countries wanting to arm themselves. And fair enough, if I'm Finland and I'm on the border of Russia, I want to arm myself. You best believe I'm going to arm myself. So, look, another thing that we've been seeing recently, and, and to be honest, I blame myself, I blame the EU for this, because the EU, if I'm a European country, and this is why I sympathise with the Brexit movement a lot, if I'm in a European country and uh, I've got somebody in Belgium, in Brussels, telling me what to do with my country and governing my country from afar, I would be pretty pissed off about that. So, uh, yeah, I blame the EU for this rise of nationalism and that we're seeing in Europe at the moment. But this conflict in Russia is also playing a part as well. So what have we got here? We've got a few comments. I think we should keep out of everything and worry about what's happening in our own backyard. Karen, that is a fine point. And in terms of Australia's impact, right now we're talking about America and about the NATO alliance and the relationship with Russia and then the collateral damage and the, the effects that that's happening around Europe. But in terms of Australia, I do believe that. However, we do have strong relationships and ties with our AUKUS tie with, uh, with the United States and with the United Kingdom. So we do have to honour those agreements as well. And we do have to have America's back because you bet, best believe that if China was to take over Taiwan, the next thing they're doing is going for Japan because China and Japan have some bad blood. China and Japan are not friends by any means. So if China were to go for Japan and take and go and invade them, we're next on the chopping block, on the chopping board. So let's hope that we don't get to that. Kylie says, I'm not sure America is in the most trustworthy hands right now. Well, I do agree with you. And I've really gone on a tangent here, but what I was talking about, uh, and great, great statement there by Kylie. Uh, what I was going to, what I was talking about was Biden's State of the Union address. But just quickly getting back to Germany for one second. There's a country called, sorry, there's a party in Germany called Alternativa for Deutschland, the alternative for Germany. Now, they are a far right nationalist party and uh, they're against immigration and they're specifically against Muslims. And we saw Angela Merkel bring in 1 million Muslims or more uh, uh, refugees to the country uh, a few years back. So we are seeing that rise of nationalist parties. We've seen it in Italy as well. There's another far-right nationalist sort of party coming up. So if you if you have a bureaucracy that takes away ha the power from the, the people of the nation, you best believe that there's going to be a, a collateral effect from that, whereby countries are going to say, hey, well, we want to govern ourselves. We want to be France first. We want to be Italy first. We want to be Germany first. So these parties that will, will come to the table and they'll say, hey, We'll put Germany first, you know. We won't, 
be be governed by somebody, some random bureaucrat in in Brussels. So interesting. It's food for thought, guys. So back to Biden's State of the Union address. And uh, Kylie, you're, you're very right about that. America is not in the greatest hands. So some of the moments that happened today from the union was lots of words being said. So Biden was up there and he was saying how he was going to do this and going to do this. And in this, in a year, it could look like this or this. But he didn't actually address the State of the Union. The whole idea of the State of the Union address is to address what is happening now. Where is the country at now? We want to know the State of the Union. It's not, it's not like being on the campaign trail where I'm saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. It, it was one of, one of I've, I've seen a few State of the Union addresses by American presidents, and this, this was the worst. This was the worst by a long shot. He didn't talk about the State of the Union at all. Now, some of the hilarious moments uh, for, for, the, for the audience today was Biden called for uh, the funding of the police. So any of you that were around during 2020, I'm sure you all saw it, the Black Lives Matter protests where they were burning and looting cities and it was absolute chaos after what happened with uh, George Floyd. Biden and all of the lefties and the Democrats and Nancy Pelosi, they were all jumping on the train. They were all saying, defund the police. New York cut their police funding. Minneapolis cut their police funding. And it was this big movement of defund the police. And guess what? It backfired because what are we seeing now? We're seeing crime is skyrocketing in the United States. Crime is on the up like, like never before. And it's a shocking situation over there. But he did not address crime at all. What he said is we need to fund our police. So his vice president, Kamala Harris, if you guys will remember, during that crisis in 2020, she organized the bail funds for some of the looters and protesters and rioters. And remember, they were calling them peaceful protesters that whole time. Well, haven't the tables turned? And obviously, the sentiment is now that we don't want to defund the police. That was a terrible idea. And whatever, wherever it happened, it was, it was absolutely catastrophic. So isn't it funny how the tables turn? When the public narrative shifts, guess who jumps on the bandwagon? Biden and Kamala Harris. They wouldn't actually say this out of principle. And they wouldn't say fund the police. And they wouldn't say that defunding the police is bad out of principle. They would only say it to play politics. So it was very, very interesting there from uh, Joe Biden today calling to fund the police. So everybody standed and applauded when that happens, even though people who were all calling to defund the police just a few years ago. So very, very short memory for Joe Biden in more, more ways than one. Now, I want to show you guys a clip really quickly. I'm going to figure out how do I share my screen here. But this was really funny because another, uh, another, let me see. Okay, so another really funny moment, guys, was when uh, Joe Biden called to, uh, where am I? He called to secure our borders. Now, his VP, Kamala Harris, who's meant to be the one who is securing the borders was standing right behind him. She's the one who's in charge of the borders in America. So that was very interesting. But he said that we need to secure our borders. And it's been one of the biggest crises, crises uh, of his administration has been the border crisis and just the people flooding over that southern border like no tomorrow. And uh, if I can share this, I normally have Chris with me here, guys. So I'm very, very sorry about this disorganization but i don't know if i'm going to be able to 
share this with you guys, unfortunately. Let me just give you one second here. I'm going to, mm, I can't get it. Anyways, so basically what happened was Joe Biden called to secure the borders and then everybody stood up and said, yeah, yeah, they're all applauding and clapping. And then as the applaud, the applause is dying down, you hear some, some, a few people in the audience, a few Congress people saying, build the wall, build the wall. And it was a great moment. So if you guys want to see that video, I've got the clips up at Contrarian Daily on Instagram. So just go to Instagram at Contrarian Daily and you'll see those clips. They're also on the Facebook page if you guys want to check them out. So that was one of the better moments from today for sure. Now, some of the things that Joe Biden did not address properly was crime, inflation, and the drama in the world. Now, he obviously addressed them in the sense that he spoke about them and he said, we need to fund the police, cool, that's, that's all. But obviously, you guys know, you've, you've been on the internet, you've seen the videos of people looting, uh, looting cities in America and walking into stop shops, filling their bags up and garbage bags up and leaving. We've seen the crime rates have been up. And more importantly, guys, inflation in the United States is highest it's been in 40 years. So the economy is really not doing too well over there. And they're in a really vulnerable spot in the United States. So guess what Joe Biden's plan was, guys? Spend more money. Spend more money. That's what his plan was. So, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. So he said that uh, he would lower costs uh, and he would lower inflation by uh, trying to move, uh, so try to, move, to, to spend more money and correct pour more money into the economy in the, in, the, in the form of trillions. Now, America is a country that's already 30 trillion US dollars in debt. So just adding to that debt is obviously not what's going to uh, solve inflation whatsoever. And it's not going to create new jobs. All that's going to happen is prices are going to keep going up and the inflation is going to get worse and worse and the currency is going to be less and less valuable. So yeah, anyways, guys, uh, another thing that, that, that Putin, I mean, Putin, Biden mentioned was uh, price controls on insulin. He talked about insulin for a little while. And uh, he said that, you know, we should cap the price. And it's just, it's another thing that, the thing with, 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 with politicians like this is that they say a bunch of nice things and a bunch of platitudes and they expect nobody to know what they're talking about. And unfortunately, for the most part, people don't really know what they're saying and they're not going to be able to look over it with a discerning eye. So whether this, this goes well for Biden is yet to be seen. So yet whether this is, is something that, um, that gets Biden a better approval rating out of like the 35% approval rating that he has right now, I'm not too sure because somebody who doesn't actually follow politics and won't actually look at what he's saying and be able to cast a, a discerning eye, as I said, they might look at that and think, oh, yeah, he's, he's going to do all of these amazing things. But they wouldn't perhaps be able to say, well, what's he done? What, what are we seeing right now? He's saying all these great things, but what is he going to do now? But what is what has he actually done? So he said about insulin that he wanted to put a price cap on insulin. Now, the problem with the American healthcare system, guys, is that they don't have free markets in the American healthcare system. It's the lack of free market that is the problem. So putting those price caps on insulin could be potentially disastrous and uh, the American healthcare system is a broken system that definitely does not need Joe Biden saying what to do. Now, next thing I'm going to go to, got my mum in the stream there. Hi, mum. I knew someone was watching. Um, 
Next thing we're going to go to, guys, is we're going to go to an article that I read today by Douglas Murray. Now, Douglas Murray is sitting pretty on my Mount Rushmore. He's one of the smartest guys in the world, in my opinion. I really, really do love Douglas Murray. So this article today, guys, was called How Putin Has Sowed the Seeds of His Demise. Even his own people don't back his paranoid warmongering. So if Afghanistan has been called the graveyard of empires, then Ukraine will be called the graveyard of Putin. So the Russian president has been preparing for this conflict for years, perhaps decades. Over the past 12 months, he has been building up his forces on the Ukraine borders. The world watched and waited, divided over whether he was mad enough to do it. Even those who believed he was definitely going to strike Ukraine tended to think he would try to seize the country's eastern Russian-speaking areas. But no, Mad Vlad tried to swallow the whole thing, like a python trying to swallow an alligator. His forces have pushed to gain the whole country, not least the capital, Kiev. Clearly, Putin imagined this would be easy. He most likely imagined the Ukrainian president and the rest of the country would flee or be easily captured. But he didn't count on his enemy's deep well of resolve. As we all know, President Zelensky stayed and rallied his people to fight. Drunk on his own megalomania, Putin underestimated the former stand-up com comic and actor and the Ukrainian people. They did not want the Russian tanks rolling into their countries. They believed that their leader and the, that the leader believes in them. So instead of rolling out the red carpet, they took up arms. Thousands of citizens, laborers, computer programmers, grandparents, and their children all queued to collect the weapons the Ukrainian government began to hand out. Ukrainians living abroad even, fly, even flew home to join the territorial defense forces and, forces and support their fighters. So just scrolling down now, guys, we can see that Douglas Murray obviously has quite a bit of contempt here for Vladimir Putin, and that is only fair enough. And some of the best, better points that I wanted to raise in this was that uh, just strolling down now one reason is the, the classic problem of a tyrant for decades Putin has brooded over the loss of the Soviet Union and just side note there guys Putin thinks that this, the downfall of the Soviet Union was the worst geopolitical disaster in history so he's been there for the last however many decades two decades that he's been in power just thinking about how he would love to reform the Soviet Union which is just the rest of the world has moved on, as Douglas Murray will continue to say. For years, Putin has dreamed of putting the Cold War entity back together. But he's not realised that while he refuses to move on, his opponents have moved on. Ukraine is a country with many flaws, but it is a democracy where the people are used to, are used to the right to elect and overthrow and throw out governments they do not like. A right that they have exercised many times in recent years. The Ukrainian people are not simply going to agree to be ruled by the Kremlin as they were under the terrible days of Stalin. And just a side note to that as well, guys, the terrible days of Stalin were pretty fucking terrible for Ukraine. So just a little story here. So in 1917, the Russian Revolution took place. And then from 1917 to 1921, there was a war called the Soviet-Ukrainian War, whereby the Red Army, Stalin's army or Lenin's army, uh, defeated the Ukrainians. And then the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist uh, Union became one of the founding members of the Soviet Union. Now, obviously, uh, this was the start of an extremely dark time, but it was also for the world, but it was also a really dark time for Ukraine as well. So in 1929 to 1932, they had the de-Kulakization of the Ukraine. So the Kulaks were what they would call wealthy peasant farmers. So they were farmers who owned uh, a little bit of land or they were farmers who employed a few people, 
or you know had slightly more wealth than the next person so they weren't wealthy by any means so what uh stalin said was that due to the communist uh philosophy anybody who owns land is a thief you they don't believe in the right to own property uh they think that you know if you did that then you stole it from people that don't believe in having more wealth than your neighbor they think you stole it from it obviously it's a bit of a um hypocritical sort of belief to have when you consider the disparity within those societies but so what stalin did was he ordered all of the kulaks to be exiled or killed so they were sent off in trains to siberia and they were they probably froze to death they uh, were killed they were arrested their families were murdered or raped or you can imagine the worst atrocities you can imagine so then this obviously eliminated all of the most productive people from the ukrainian society so this is the the farmers who were correct who were all, all the grain and all the rice and all the bread and the food in a time where this was already sparse and futile as it was so this was a terrible time for the for the ukraine as a nation and then just to add to that during stalin's five-year plan to industrialize the soviet union he had a five-year plan where he wanted to basically bring the soviet union from horse and cart to an industrialized nation and during that time one of his genius tactics was to go into the ukraine to steal all of the grain and all of the food sell it to other european countries and then uh, profit off that to help try and fund the great the Stalin's leap forward, I guess you could call it. So in the 1930s, 5 million Ukrainians died of starvation in a famine. The famine is widely known as Holodomor, but there was a bit of history behind it as well. So you can imagine if you're a Ukrainian with the history that you have endured under the Soviet Union, you're not really desperate to see the Soviet Union reformed. Now, it's important to know that there are two different sectors in Ukraine. You've got the, the uh, eastern side of Ukraine, which is more ethnically Russian. So they sort of identi identify with Putin a little bit more and identify with the Russians a little bit more. And you've got western Ukraine, which is more ethnically Ukrainian. And there is ethnically, ethnically Ukrainian is a, is a valid term because, you know, they do have a quite a long history. Moving on with the article now. The rest of the world has also moved on. While cyber warfare, limited tactical warfare, and other forms of war remain normal, the world has simply lost the appetite for large countries rolling in and trying to conquer their smaller neighbours. The world, and Europe in particular, will remember the 20th century, and it does not want to return to it, even if Vladimir Putin does. Even his countrymen are growing tired of him. Their patience with their leader disappears by the day. Thousands of ordinary Russians or are already taking to the streets to protest at great personal danger. Now, you have to understand, guys, this is a dictatorship in Russia. So obviously, there's no freedom of the press in Russia. You cannot criticize Vladimir Putin. You cannot do what I'm doing right now. And if I wanted to criticize Stomo, I could. And it's one of the beautiful things about living in a free society. I mean, the, the past two years, uh, we can talk about that. But for the most part, Australia is a free society. I can criticize my government. In Russia, you cannot. So if you are out there protesting in Russia right now against Putin's actions and showing uh, and showing disunity and not showing solidarity with the government, you will be arrested. You won't only be arrested, you will spend a lot of time in prison. So the fact that there are thousands of people willing to take that risk and willing to protest really says something. And I doubt we would see protests of that magnitude very often in, in Russia, in Moscow. I highly doubt it. 
So how many horrific images of Ukrainian children murdered by rockets sent in the name of their country can they take? How much economic pain will they put up with to obliterate a country most do not see as an enemy? A war that has no greater good. Even the, oligar even the oligarchs are worried. Look at Chelsea uh, FC owner Roman Abramovich. Presumably desperate not to let his club be snatched up in his billions frozen in and his business sunk mansions and apartments. He is now, after his cynical move at the weekend, to distance himself from Chelsea's stewardship, playing peacemaker. So this is one of the foremost billionaires and oligarchs uh, in, in Russia. He, I mean, he, I think he lives in London because he's the owner of Chelsea Football Club. He owns the club. He's, he's an extremely rich man. And we know that there are a lot of these Russian billionaires and oligarchs out there. So the fact that a guy like Roman Abramovich is playing peacemaker, that really says something because you can imagine if the EU is targeting uh, is targeting Russian oligarchs and billionaires, this is going to have a huge effect on their back pocket and on their bottom line. So, I mean, th this is speculation and like the relationship that Putin has with those guys and how much they knew about this, how much they might have seen it coming. That's another thing to be talked about because if I'm Vladimir Putin right now, I might be worried I might be watching my back a little bit because he's, I mean, when it comes to business, guys, business is business. And if you're a Russian billionaire, you don't want somebody coming in and ruining business for you. And then this, and this has been terrible for business for all of the, the Russian billionaires having these sanctions put on them from around the world. They're basically isolated from the rest of the world and this will crush most of them. So how much power they have and how much resolve Putin has if those guys do turn on him, that's that remains to be seen. But that's really interesting food for thought as well. So, all right. So, surrounded by yes men. So, Putin is obviously uh, someone who's quite surrounded by yes men. How many of Putin's uh, quote friends unquote will desert will desert him when the increasingly harsh sanctions start to hurt their interests? Where even are they? So Vladimir Putin has always been surrounded by yes men, but for the last two years, he has been weirdly alone. Now, this is the important part to understand. If you guys want to get into the mind of Vladimir Putin a little bit, have a think about how this following statements might have, might have affected him a little bit. So the Russian despot seems to have feared COVID more than our own 95-year-old monarch ever did. And while Queen Elizabeth got COVID and carried on, Putin seems to have lived in fear of it. For two years, anyone wishing to see him had to isolate for two weeks beforehand and then be sprayed by Kremlin chemicals. Not something that I would trust, says Douglas Murray. Even now, he sits 40 feet from anyone who is talking to him. In isolation, in his isolation, his paranoia and mania seems appears to have grown. It may yet be his undoing. He has brooded on a plan that was meant to bring back the 20th century Soviet Union. And as he faces destroyed Russian economy and a long drawn out war in Ukraine, it looks possible that he has only brought about something else. Something unimaginable even a week ago, the end game of Vladimir Putin. Now, there are speculation and there are rumors about Vladimir Putin's health. So whether it's true or not, we're not sure, but it, it, it begs the question, this guy's a former KGB. He's a hard man, he's a tough guy. So why is he so scared of COVID? Anybody who had to, who came near him over the, anybody who came near Vladimir Putin over the last two years had to isolate for two weeks before they even spoke to him. What does that tell you about this guy? I mean, 
Vladimir Putin's a tough guy and he's not going to be scared of COVID and especially Omicron. But having to isolate for two weeks before seeing him, that for me says that he has some sort of underlying concern about his health. So I guess that will play out. And also the isolation of that as well. He's obviously been distancing himself from people a lot. So how much of paranoia and mania has played a part in this? And that's what I—that's the sort of question that I would ask here because it, it seems it seems irrational. And unless Vladimir Putin has an endgame that we don't quite understand, then uh, the idea of of going against the West is quite, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it doesn't seem like a very smart idea. But in saying that, the one thing that Vladimir Putin has managed to do is unite the West and unite NATO like it's never been united before. Because we all know that all they ever do is bicker and argue with each other. So uh, congratulations to Vladimir Putin on that, I guess, on uniting the West and united, uniting NATO. Unfortunately, is is in fact against him. So uh, I guess that's all from me tonight, guys. I just wanted to basically cover a little bit of Joe Biden's State of the Union address and then uh, talk about Vladimir Putin and where we're at with that and that, con that conflict and perhaps the end of Vladimir Putin. And what I mean by the end of Vladimir Putin is the fact that he's potentially annoyed all of the wrong people here. And this is taking a lot longer. He may have expected to come straight in and take the city of Kiev and for the president to flee um, with a helicopter full of money like we've seen other world leaders do when they've been invaded. But that hasn't happened. He's been met with a stiff resistance. The Ukrainian people are resisting. The, pres the president of Ukraine is resisting. Uh, we've seen solidarity from all around the world. The, the, the European sanctions on Russia have been incredibly tough, incredibly tough. America, not so much. They need to target the energy industry more. They should never have let that Nord Stream pipeline uh, they should never have signed off on that. That was a terrible mistake. But we could be seeing the end of it here, guys, because how, we, this is the question you have to ask. Vladimir Putin, by the way, is one of those Russian billionaires because he's obviously a very wealthy man. Speculation that he could be the richest man in the world, but uh, maybe, maybe not. So what you have to ask yourself, who has the power in Russia? Is Does Putin have all the power or do these Russian billionaires and oligarchs have a wider sphere of influence than him? And what is their, where is their loyalty? Is their loyalty to their business? And is their loyalty to their bottom line? Or is their loyalty to the reformation of the Soviet Union? I'll leave you with that. So thank you so much, guys. My name is Jake Julius. Make sure you're following Contrarian Daily on all different platforms, on Rumble, on TikTok, on Telegram, and all of that good stuff. We're posting content every day. We're going to be back here every day doing live, uh, live videos on whatever's happening in the world, whatever's topical, and there is plenty of subject matter at the moment. So thanks once again, guys, and uh, from Contrarian Daily, get informed, get involved. See you guys.